Let me begin by reading a few verses in Hebrews, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of his ministers, a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Let's stop there. Let me ask you a question. Spiritually speaking and practically speaking, what is your identity? What is your identity? How do you identify yourself to yourself and to others who know you? What do people know you by? What is your identity? Identity is an important part of the Christian life because we are called to identify as Christians, as Christ-like people. You're called to be like Christ. Paul said in Philippians 1, to live is Christ. So your life is Christ. And we all fall short in terms of this, all of us. We identify with all kinds of things. My title is, Jesus is Better Than Your Fascinations. Another way to put my question is, what fascinates you? What's your fascination? What are you fascinated by? What do you wish you had that you don't have? What do you wish you were known by that you're not yet known by? What fascinates you? What enthralls your spirit? The first Christian disciples in Antioch were called Christians. Because they were fascinated with Christ. They were enthralled with Christ and they were communicating Christ-likeness to the watching world. This is Christianity. This is where Christianity heats up. Christian identity is something that's always being competed with in our hearts, is it not? There's always a competition for Christ versus fill in the blank. And you probably might know what it is. Something that is eclipsing Christ in your life that you are identified by or wish that you were being identified by. Your identity should be Christ. These early Christians, according to verse 5 and 4 and 5, and this confrontation that the author of Hebrews begins and will carry on through the rest of chapter 1, by the way, into chapter 2, is he's confronting this early church of Christians that they were fascinated by angels. They were being fascinated with angels. They were wanting to identify their Christian spirituality with angels. 
In one sense, they were dumbing down Christ and they were elevating angels. Angels were fascinating to them. This biblical vision of Christ that I preached through a couple weeks ago, verses 1 to 3, the Son revelation who's revealing to us God, who's the glory of God, who's the exact imprint and nature of God, who's the upholder, sustainer, and creator of all things by his word and power. This Christ is glorious and he made purification for all of our sins and he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. Well, This would be in one column if you T-bar it right now. That's the exalted Christ. And then you put angels in the other column. And the early church began to elevate angels above Christ for some reason. And I want to make the case that reading the book of Hebrews, just to give a general context for why they might have done that, I came up with a very plausible motivation i think that they were elevating angels as a means to protect themselves from persecution you say what do i mean by that well if you have christ as your character if you have christ as your identity if you have christ as your life if you're saying he's the indomitable one the only way the only truth the only life this is the exalted christ and i'm with him that immediately brings whoever you're talking to to a point of crossroads in how they're going to treat you perceive you interact with you engage with you believe you or not it becomes a take it or leave it moment with anyone And it does, no matter how gentle you are in your communication, you say, I mean, you can quiet the voice, I believe in Christ. And if you don't believe in Christ, the result will be eternal damnation versus eternal heaven. You can say it however you want to say it, but it cuts things quick to the quick. Well, they said, well, let's talk about Christ, but let's elevate angels. If you elevate angels, Christ, or if you demote Christ to basically angel status, which that may sound familiar to you, that's what the Mormon religion does. They they devalue or dumb Christ down to angel status. If you do that, then you have a Christ who is not offensive, not a problem. He's just one of the Greek gods of the pantheon now, right? I mean, we can relate to him, we can learn from him, but he's not God. He's not accountability to me now he's just an angel and so they were fascinated with angels as a means of protection from persecution diving into the setting and background of hebrews um, can show us what these second generation christians were up to and what they were doing hebrews and i want to do that i want to give you some more background on hebrews i i know this is sort of my third introductory sermon on the book of hebrews but there's a lot here and you won't fully understand and appreciate all that's here if you don't do some background work and i am going to do that now because i can um unless you pull me off the stage all right so Hebrews has been called the riddle of the New Testaments because nobody knows who really wrote this book and nobody definitely, definitively knows to whom this book was written or the exact circumstances prompting this masterpiece. It's been this way since the earliest days of the church. The 27 books of our New Testament um, that make up part of our canon, the New Testament, they were immediately recognized as authoritative with the internal witness of the Holy Spirit as they were read, as they were spoken, and as they were written down. These books of the Bible 
were and always have been inspired, and Hebrews is one of them. But some of these books were not given titles and were not officially put together as the canon until the second century. And so this is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was titled To the Hebrews, but it's so much more than just a Jewish history book in the New Testament. It really is. It does so much more than just tie the Old Testament to the New Testament. This book is filled with challenges that we need to hear and be open to. So what is this? Is it a letter or is it a sermon? The answer is, class, yes, it's both. It's an elevated style of well-crafted literary work. It rivals Luke's writings of of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. It's got polished Greek. It, it's like a book of many expositions. There are all kinds of Old Testament paragraphs, some of which I just read this morning, that the author exposits. He's like an expositor preaching from the Old Testament and applying it to the hearer. So he's skilled in that way. He's an urgent preacher giving words of exhortations, Hebrews 13, 22. But he gives personal greetings at the end, news, a benediction of grace. So it's a sermon letter to people he actually knew. Who is the preacher? Who is this author? Well, the church was trying to die on the hill that it's Paul. A lot of people believe it was Paul. It really doesn't read like Paul. It checks out with Paul's theology, though. Um, They were trying to force credibility with this book of the Bible to say, put it in the New Testament canon, put it in there. Paul wrote it, but we don't really know that. Paul introduces himself in all of his letters. He doesn't do that here. Clement of Alexandria in AD 150, um, he thought that it was written by Paul in Hebrew and translated by Luke in Greek. Um, Origen thought this were, these are the thoughts of Paul. The eastern and western side of European um, you know, domain, those church um, groups were split over this issue. But um, really, if you look at Hebrews 2, 3, if you look at that verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it says, the message of this was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. In other words... The Lord met with the apostles. The Lord met with his early disciples. And those disciples were the missionaries that reached the people who recorded this book and who heard this book of the Bible. So if you base just the issue of Paul on that verse, it can't be Paul because Paul heard from Christ directly, Galatians 1.12. Okay, this is all just for free because everybody wonders who wrote the book of Hebrews. Was it Barnabas? Was it Aquila or Priscilla? Luke? Clement? Silvanus? Philip? Um, Apollos, as uh, Apollos is uh, Luther thought, because Apollos is Alexandrian, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. Uh, we have no idea. We have no idea. So just you can just X out all of what I just said. It, we just don't know. We don't know. The point is, though, that this book of the Bible bears a witness by the Holy Spirit, and we do know one thing. As Origen said, truly only God knows who wrote this book, but this book is inspired by God. And so God wrote this book of the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit moved men as they were carried along um, by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 21. So who read this letter? Was it a Jewish audience or a Gentile audience? We say it's to the Hebrews, so it's got to be a Jewish audience. All of the temple you know, sacrificial system that's mentioned throughout this book. It's got to be written to Jerusalem, to these Hebrew um, Christians, these Jewish believers. It's got to be that. 
It happened before the temple fell. Otherwise, the author would have mentioned that the temple had fallen already. He's, he's talking in the present tense to present tense sacrifices. The priest stands daily. We have an altar. There's a system in place. That's all mentioned in the present tense in Hebrews. So it was around AD 70. Timothy is mentioned in, I think, Hebrews 13 as just being released from prison. So Timothy was alive during this time. So it's, it's a current book for the early church, but that doesn't prove that it was a Jewish community only. I, in fact, think that it was a Jewish and Gentile community. I think it was um, early Christians. It, was, um, it were, was Jewish Christians and then Gentiles who were, who were being converted into the church through this missionary movement. Jerusalem makes a lot of sense until you read Hebrews 13, 24. If you look at that verse, Hebrews 13, 24, at the end, it mentions Italy. You don't want to just dismiss this. This is at the end. This is the letter part of this book. Verse 24, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. I think that what the author is doing here is he is saying that there are Christians who are with him from where he's writing, and he's writing believers who are in Italy. He's saying those who are from your hometown, it's like, hey, you know, we're, I don't know, we're in Seattle, but your, your Anchorage brothers and sisters, they greet you. They're with me right now, but they greet you. This, is, this was actually the case for what happened to Aquila and Priscilla, Acts 18.2. It says he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, um, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the, the Roman leader at that time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla had left Jerusalem, had left Galilee and gone to, or left that Jerusalem area and gone to uh, Rome, and then they were commanded to, to, to leave Rome. So I just believe that there's a connection to the early church and, and probably a small beginning of, of Christians who were there in Rome hearing from this Author. I also think that the dominant theme of persecution, Christian persecution that was happening under Nero reflects what was going on with this church. It's very easy to understand that believers were seeking shelter in the religion of Judaism. They were Christian believers. They were new converts, but because of the the nearness to Judaism, both what was happening in Jerusalem with the temple still standing and the synagogue worship that was allowed to take place throughout the Roman Empire, these new converts were tempted to claim Christ, but also to tuck back into a Judaism of sacrificing And offering sacrifices and following Old Testament, Old Covenant law in a way that would give them safety and sanctuary from persecution. Because Roman, Roman, um, the Roman emperor empire would not touch those new believers if they were viewed as practicing Jews. This was a form of compromise that the church was facing. It was temptations. The Levitical priesthood and sacrificial system was in operation, and they were tempted to return back to their an allegiance to the physical temple to alleviate 
persecuting pressure. Now, the author is, is wanting these Christians to step up. Hebrews 5 says they ought to be teachers by now. They, they, again, need to be taught the basic oracles of God. You're still needing milk instead of solid food. There was established good leadership at this point in the church. Hebrews 13, 17, remember your leaders, imitate their faith. They were currently under some persecution. Hebrews 10, 32, they had endured a hard struggle and sufferings, though some of that had been alleviated. They had shown growth and joy, Hebrews 6, 10, for their work of love, serving the saints. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. So these Jews and Gentiles, perhaps in Rome, were struggling with unique temptations. The Gentiles were attracted to push beyond Christianity, taking on Jewish forms or practices, and the Jews were trying to concretize their faith. They were tempted to trust in their religious practice for some kind of assurance of forgiveness. But likely, the Jews and Gentiles were seeking social safety found in identifying with temple practices. This was a defection of the faith. It all turns on persecution. Hebrews 10, as I read before, it just speaks of what they were going, going through. Verse 33, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those um, so treated. For you have compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. So they, their stuff was stolen. They were put in prison. They were hurting. They perhaps hadn't, Um, resisted to the point of shedding blood, as is mentioned later. Maybe they weren't martyred yet, but, but for sure there was strong persecution under Nero. Hebrews 12, 4, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood. But they were on the cusp of that. These are, these are the steps of persecution that comes that is real in our world today. It's happening now. The more that our church, the more that we become dialed into missions, the more we will understand persecution, right? It's always that way. We're in a reprieve right now. Things just went wild in the Senate, right, this week. That was wild. It was nerve-wracking to watch. The anger in our culture is escalating. People are getting angrier and angrier and angrier. What's it going to mean for Christians? Not just secular arenas, not just political agendas, not just dynamism like that, not just those kinds of power play moments. What's it going to mean for our church? What's it going to mean for Christians? Well, this book is given to prepare Christians for greater persecution. That's what Hebrews is focused on. So it's a cyclical letter that was to Italy, but surrounding regions of Greece and Asia Minor. The Old Testament passages, by the way, were written from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, meaning that it was a book meant for not just Jews, but also Greek-reading Gentiles. It was. So Jewish and Gentile converts now living in exile were tempted to substitute the substitute Christian identity and just sound Christian worship for local synagogue worship in Jerusalem. They were pushing the envelope. They were ducking for cover, risking their identity with Christ for a lesser identity. So why does it matter that 
Jesus is better than the angels in light of all this? What, how does this tie together with angels? Um, the Son, point one, the Son of God is better than your fascinations. He's better than everything. It matters for these believers that we're thinking of. It mattered that Jesus was better than the angels. And it matters that Jesus is better than anything that is captivating you and your fascinations. It does. How does this all tie together? The temptation, again, was to demote Christ to an angel status. There was a cult community who ultimately did this, who ultimately left Christian moorings and they were the Qumran Messianic Jews and their locale was near the Dead Sea and they believed Michael the archangel was of a higher status than the Messiah. This happens. People elevate mystical things above Christ. Well, verse 4 says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name here is referencing the son from verse 2. He's called the son, and all of the attributes that I just rehearsed are what make up the son. He's better than angels. Why? Because he's, he gives a better hope, a better covenant, better sacrifice. He brings a better possession, future possession. He's the better resurrection. He's the resurrection and the life. He's, you know, he's, his blood that was shed is better than the blood of Abel's blood. The word better is used um, and translated as superior in the English Standard Version in verse 4. That word kraton is used 13 sometimes throughout this book. And it's all reflecting on how Jesus is better. If you want an application for your life, just examine yourself day after day after day and say, Am I prizing something as better than Jesus? Or should I say, No, Jesus is better than that. Fill in the blank. Jesus is is better than anything that comes up in your mind. Jesus is the one who shares God's nature, manifests God's glory, purifies believers of sins, and reigns at the right hand of God. And the name that he inherited is the name Son. Now, was he the Son of God eternally? Yes. He was the Son of God as creator? Yes. But when Jesus condescended and came to earth and humbled himself, leaving the riches of heaven for your sakes and my sake. He, he came underneath the angels for a time, right? The angels who are in heaven glorifying the Father. And Jesus condescended himself in condescension, coming beneath the angels in a sense, providing a salvation into which, as First Peter puts, the angels long to look. What is going on? How could the Son of God, in his exaltation, come down in condescension here on earth? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? What is this all about? How is this good news for Jesus to do this and yet Jesus did and he died and he ascended to the right hand of the father and at that point he is vindicated extolled and affirmed at the right hand of the father as superior as better than the angels at the name of Jesus what every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father Jesus is Lord 
That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. You have a fascination with angels. You're dumbing Christ down to your own detriment. Don't do this. See Christ for who he is. Regain a biblical vision for Christ because he's better. Now, why does this matter? <laughs> what, is this, what does this have to do with angels and these new believers? Well, I'm going to try to explain this as quickly as I can, and we'll perhaps come back to it next week. But angels were created beings. We know that. But angels are very, very powerful. The, uh, the vision of angels that we have by, you know, Michael Landon touched by an angel or whatever, you know, those, those versions of angels have nothing to do with these supernatural beings. The Jews felt like they had a hotline to God because they were connected to angels. Angels would speak to Abraham, Moses. I mean, angels were around, right? Angels were entertained by the heroes of the faith. Angels were present at the giving of the law of God on Mount Sinai. There's this connection. There's this lesser than Jesus mediation role. Angels are messengers. That's what the word angelos means. They are messaging God. They're they're singing and exalting the, the newborn Christ. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. There was a connection to Jews and then these Jewish converts that we know angels. We know supernatural beings. We know the beings that are surrounding the throne of heaven that Isaiah 6 spoke of that we can pull out in our scroll and the angels with six wings that say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. With two, they cover their feet. With two wings, they cover their feet. And two wings, they fly. These seraphim that brought the, the coal off the altar to make purification for Isaiah to speak. Jews found great identity and pride in angelic beings and we should be reverential in a non-worshiping sense we should be sobered by the thought of angels we don't worship angels that's was the rebuke against john get up john you fell down before an angel right i mean to be in the presence of an angel would be a strikingly dramatic thing an awe-inspiring thing and so these jews were saying well we are we're really really dialed into angels Why? Well, perhaps it's because the angels were present at the giving of the law. Exodus 19 is that story that that leads us to Mount Sinai where the law was given. Moses was, was warning people in the name of God to stay back from the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 9, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and that and you may also believe forever. In verse 10, he he said, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Wash their garments. Be ready on the third day. Uh, The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. Verse 12, and you shall set limits for the people around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain and touch the edge of it. You'd be put to death. Animals would be put to death. Then on the morning of the third day, verse 16, there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Verse 21, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And the priests who came near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Verse 23, set limits 
of the mountain and consecrate it. The whole point of, of this is that God's presence brings holiness. It brought holiness. To be in God's presence is the atmosphere of holiness. And angels were always part of this atmosphere of holiness. So there's a, there's a, a depth and breadth to the presence of angels. You say, well, there was no mention of angels here in Exodus 19. Well, Deuteronomy 33 is where Moses is speaking of that moment. And in verse 2, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. There's 10,000 angels between heaven and earth in that moment. Psalm 68, 17, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. There are thousands upon thousands the lord is among them and then in the, in the new testament acts seven fifty three. Um, this is stephen he's getting ready to be martyred for the faith he's talking about the law as it was delivered by angels galatians three nineteen. Um, why then the law why well, speaking of the law and he said it was in place through angels by an intermediary christ is the inter- intermediary but angels are present Hebrews 2.2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. There's a declaration of of the message of the gospel by angels. There's a transmission of the law in the the presence of angels. And so these Jewish Christians were saying, I'm threatened by persecution. Nero is coming. The government pressure is upon us. Let's just talk about angels a little bit more than Christ. Christ. Let's blur things up a little bit. That's the Gnostic movement. Let's, you know, let's make it about you know, something that's more ethereal. It's just what we do on the side. It's our little angel worship. Don't worry about it. Or let's identify with Christ. Christ is my life. The angels are created by Christ. The angels worship Christ. Christ is my life to live as Christ. Those are two different messages. One message is pretty light. No matter how ethereal and weird and mystical you can make it with angels, no matter how many angels you can try to count on a pinhead, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do with angels, it's not Christ. When Christ is your life, that's an entirely different message. It's important to recognize that the source of the law was not angels. Um, there's verse after verse, Exodus 24, 12, 31, 18, 32, 16, 34, 1, Deuteronomy 9, 10. It all speaks of God wrote the Ten Commandments. He wrote on the tablets of stone. He wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger, the finger of God, the writing of God. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. He, they were written, on, written with the finger of God. And by the way, as Christians... That same finger not only wrote on those tablets of stone, he wrote on the tablet of your heart, right? The, the old covenant was all about the coming of Christ where we would have a heart change, where your stony heart would be replaced by a soft heart that loves Jesus Christ. How did that happen? That happened because God's finger wrote on your heart a, 
a message to love Christ and to obey the law by the heart. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. That's Jeremiah 31, 33. Romans 2, 15. The law is written on their hearts. Hebrews 10, 14, and 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God in Christ wrote on your heart to love him in the presence of angels. But the angels didn't do that. The angels, they aren't your identity. Religious experience is not your identity. Your job is not your identity. Your ethnic background is not your identity. Those are lesser identities. Those are things, but don't make them your shiny thing. Don't do that. Christ is your life. Christ is your identity. Christ is why you give. Christ is why you live. Christ is why you do anything. It's Christ, not some compromise, not some swapping out. Something else for the superiority of Christ. Can't do it. Next week, verse 5 brings us into a new category. The son is better than, we'll fill in the blank next week.